Today we're beginning a, a six-week Eastertide sermon series entitled Resurrection Matters. Resurrection Matters. And so much hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, by which we mean the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. This event that we celebrated last weekend in uh, a great manner, with lots of creative expression, um, this is the event of our faith. It's the grounding event, the bedrock, that forms and that, that informs our understanding of Jesus, of the world, of our future, of our present, and of our witness. And in this series, over the next six weeks, we'll cover all of those topics at a deeper level. This event is the event that does bring and breathe life into you and into me as we seek to follow Jesus in the present day. This is the event that moves us and that shapes us. And our aim in the series will be to understand the centrality and the coherence of resurrection for our Christian faith and for our lives. The resurrection isn't like a, a gift bag that you receive on your way out from a birthday party. I know you're not getting these now, but my kids are getting them at every party that they go to. It's not an add-on to an already rich experience. It is the party. It is the, the song. It is the dance. It is the event that connects everything else and from which everything in the Christian life begins to grow out of. It's the resurrection. And as we understand this more in the coming weeks, I'm very hopeful that this will challenge our skepticism, a skepticism that we all have in one way or another, and as a result that it will increase our confidence in our faith and in our witness to the resurrected Jesus, as well as to our hope and our joy and the peace that he brings, that it will strengthen us as God's people to live as God's people and to bear witness to the God of life and resurrection. We actually spent our topic as a community in late February on our retreat together, or, or we spent our day on, on, at the retreat on the topic of witness, witness. And we want to keep having that conversation. And my hope is that as we go through this series, that in a secondary sense, this is the conversation that will stay alive, if you will, as we look in a primary sense at the reality and the ramifications of resurrection. Because the central reality to which we bear witness is the resurrection of Jesus. This is what the early church spoke about. And this is borne out in the biblical text, as we'll come to especially and specifically in our final sermon on resurrection and witness the texts bear out the fact that it was the resurrection of Jesus to which the earliest witnesses, the earliest church, was speaking and bearing witness to that. So we'll get there eventually, but I hope it runs underneath throughout this series together. And I would say that to grow in our confidence about his resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus, and its centrality to our faith is then both to embolden and empower us as witnesses at the very same time. That in other words, as we grow in our understanding and deep conviction about this event, that we will become much more courageous in our witness in the world around us. And that's something I long to see. Now, if you're with us this evening and you're not uh, a Christian or you find the resurrection just to be quite unbelievable in many ways, then I really hope that the series that we're doing on resurrection will enable you to see this event more clearly and in a new light. And not just view it as some kind of wacky, crazy thing that Christians believe, against all evidence to the contrary, but that you'll come to understand why it's so central to us in the church, why we proclaim something as amazing as a man being raised from the dead, 
and that you'll see that, in fact, far from being far-fetched, that in light of the historical and textual evidence, that this is much more plausible than you might first initially think. And that's where we'll actually be specifically next week as we deal with questions of history and truth around the topic of resurrection. I also hope that this series challenges you uh, to know that Christianity and Jesus are not just about good teaching. There's a lot of good teaching in the Bible and in Jesus' life that we are grateful for and we're um, challenged by. But the deeper heart of the Christian faith is about a new world. It's about a new life. It's about a change in this world that actually took place and that means something different is possible for you and for me. And at the heart of that change is the reality of Jesus' Jesus's resurrection. So I hope eventually that it will lead you to confront the reality of God and of his love and his power and his presence and his invitation for you to trust in him with your life, to turn your life over to him. We want to be a community at Church of the Cross where you can explore that invitation and ask questions and, uh, and really seek after the truth. And we hope and pray ultimately that you'll come to embrace that life and invitation that we celebrate in the resurrection. So that's my hope for you if you're here tonight really struggling to believe whether the resurrection could happen or not. I want you to wrestle with that as a means by which you can encounter this God that we proclaim. The opening message tonight is entitled, Jesus Matters. And the question that I want to wrestle with is quite straightforward. It's this, what does the resurrection say about the person and the work of Jesus? What does the resurrection say about the person and the work of Jesus? What does it tell us about who he is and about what he accomplished? And to address that, we're going to look at a passage in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the greatest passage in the New Testament written about resurrection. And we'll spend some time in it over the next six weeks. Not exclusively, but we'll be there tonight. So if you've got your Bible, open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to look first at this summary that Paul gives of the gospel. He says, now I would remind, remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you in verse 1. And then in verses 3 through 5, he articulates what that gospel is. A very succinct um, statement about the good news that Christianity has to offer the world. He says that the Messiah died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And he moves on from there, but we'll stop there. So there it is. At the heart of the proclamation of the church is the reality of resurrection. The Messiah died, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day. And this wasn't just Paul's invention. Maybe some of you here don't like Paul. You like the Gospels instead. The reality is that this is at the heart of the earliest tradition of the church. Paul says very clearly, I didn't make this up. This wasn't my great idea. This wasn't my theological innovation. He says in verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received. And those two words, delivered and received, are indicating, they're technical terms to indicate Paul is faithfully passing on a tradition. Remember, Paul's writing about 20 years after the death of Jesus, which is strikingly early. This is our earliest witness to the resurrection, the writings of Paul. 
And what he says is, by the time I'm writing, just 20 years later, there's already an established, developed tradition of people who follow this Jesus that says at the heart of our good news is that he rose from the dead. Christ was raised. We'll come back to the fact that Jesus appeared to many after his resurrection next week as we deal with these matters and questions of truth and history. So I want to note that that that's a very important part of this text that Paul goes on and continues about. But for now, I I want us to see that the question that we're asking tonight about what does the rest of you say about Jesus and his work, about his person and his work, is answered in this very short summary. Who is Jesus? The early Christian claim is that Jesus was Israel's Messiah. Which, as the Old Testament had always affirmed, meant that he was the world's true king and Lord. What did he accomplish? What does it say about his work? The inauguration and start of the long-awaited kingdom of God, which was signified through the forgiveness of sins and which brought about the renewal of creation, the first evidence of which is Jesus' own physical resurrection. That's what the hope for Messiah was always going to do. What we read about it in Isaiah 11 tonight. This agent of God, empowered by the Spirit, who would bring about renewal through righteousness and justice. Who would usher in a time of new creation when the wolf would lie down with the lamb and the leopard with the young goat. And the nursing child would play by the cobra's den. A creation now no longer fractured and at odds with one another, but now living in beautiful harmony. This Messiah figure who would rule over the nations, verse 10 of Isaiah 11, that of him the nations would inquire. When Paul says that Jesus' death and resurrection were in accordance with the scriptures, which he says twice in this short summary about his death and rising, he means not just that there were a few texts that spoke of these events, perhaps cryptically, which in fact there are, but rather that this person and these events in his life actually fulfill the story and hopes of the Old Testament, of Israel's scriptures and longings. And that's the good news. Through the death and resurrection, through his death and resurrection, Jesus is Lord. And through him, God is reconciling all things, forgiveness of sins, and making all things new, new creation life. Demonstrated in his resurrection, where Jesus is seem to be the first fruits of the new age, or the firstborn from the dead. And Paul goes on to spell that out a bit more in verses 20 through 28. We need to remember that Jesus, in his ministry, actually said that this is what he was going to do. That he was going to come and bring about the forgiveness of sins, bring about the inauguration of God's kingdom, bring about the new age that they had been longing for. Remember his first words in Mark's gospel. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. God's kingdom is coming, and I'm heralding it and announcing it. I'm declaring that the present evil age is coming to an end and a close, and the new age and reign of God is going to break into this world. And I'm offering forgiveness of sins. Remember how many times we expect him to heal, and he said, said, no, your sins are forgiven. He's saying the exile is coming to an end. God's great new work is coming about in and through me. And his ministry, not only his teaching, but his healings, his raising people from the dead, all pointed in this direction. As did his symbolic actions of cleansing the temple, as we read about in John 2, and of riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. 
Those were messianic actions. And people knew what he meant as they shouted when he came into the city, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. This is Messiah language. Our king has finally come. The new age is dawning. God's kingdom, God will reign. This is happening. He is the one to redeem Israel. But then, all of this comes to a tragic end on a Roman cross. The crowd turned on him. His own disciples denied him and betrayed him and fled from him. And here's the point. If this was the end of this wonderful earthly life and ministry, if the Messiah was not raised from the dead, as Paul goes on to say in verses 12 through 19 of this chapter, then the gospel and the good news is actually just a fraud. Verse 14, our preaching is in vain. Verse 15, we're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised the Messiah whom he did not raise. Verse 17, then your faith is futile and we are still in our sins. That is the new age of the, of the reign of God has not yet happened. Sin and death are still enslaving us. As a result, verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. That's the end. And verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, then we of all people are most to be pitied. If the Messiah is not raised, then all these great claims and hopes of salvation are a sham. That's the logic that Paul is using. Without resurrection, Jesus' shameful, humiliating death would have been exactly what it appeared to be to everyone who watched. Defeat the end of the road, the invalidation of his claims to inaugurate God's kingdom. Because everybody knew in that day, everybody knew that to die on a Roman cross was to have your revolutionary and messianic claims finally and decisively invalidated. It's the equivalent of getting voted off of American Idol. You're not going to be the American Idol and nobody's going to cheer for you anymore. Or losing in the first round of the playoffs. You're not going to be Super Bowl champs. Nobody's in the game for you anymore because you're out. You're done. You're finished. You're off the map. There's no ambiguity in this as people watch this take place. The cross meant exactly that Jesus was a pretender, a fraud, someone who made bold and big promises, who had no ability to follow through. All those parties with sinners and tax collectors that we looked at in the meals in Luke's gospel, they were a really nice sentiment, but they in the end didn't mean or change anything. Things went back to business as usual. The example of two other would-be messiahs around this time is quite instructive for us as we think about what was going on back in the first century. Or, um, yeah, back in the first century. Simon Bargiora Bar led the first great Jewish revolt between 66 and 70 AD, a messianic figure, and he was killed by the Romans. During the second great Jewish revolt around 130 AD, the Bar Kokhba Re Revolution, Simeon ben Kosiba led the effort, but he too was presumably killed when Rome crushed this resistance movement. And here's what's so important about that. It's that in both of these cases, those movements came to a screeching halt. They came to an end. No one claimed that these men were really, after all, Israel's Messiah, the world's true king. When they were killed, along with their movements, their work was finished. And their followers didn't start a movement around them. 
They knew that they had failed. The followers are thankful to escape with their lives and to move on and readjust to life without the hopes of these two would-be messiahs. But it's so different with this story with Jesus. His followers were undeterred by his public, shameful, humiliating death on a Roman cross. Everybody knew that he had died. Everybody knew that he had faced his end. And yet his followers didn't disperse, but they made the astounding claim that this Jesus, this crucified Jesus, was the Messiah, the world's true king. The only reason that we have to explain the difference between these three different movements is because the early followers of Jesus believed wholeheartedly that he had been bodily raised from the dead. Paul asserts, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, verse 20. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He was not the vanquished would-be revolutionary, but he was in fact the king of the world who had ushered in the new age of God's kingdom. And so we have to understand that everything about Jesus and everything about what he did hinges on the reality of resurrection. Everything does. Now, it's not just that resurrection somehow by default makes him Messiah, Lord, and Son of God automatically. If for some odd reason tomorrow your Uncle Joe came back to life from the dead, no one would start claiming that he was Israel's Messiah and the world's true king. But it's the resurrection as the culmination of this particular life, of these particular actions, of this particular teaching, at this particular moment, inside this particular story that declares unambiguously that Jesus is who he claims to be, Israel's Messiah, and therefore, by, ne by definition, the world's true king, the Son of God, that accomplished what he came and set out to do, to inaugurate God's kingdom of forgiveness of sins and new life offered to all under his rule. It's no surprise, then, that at the end of the accounts of the resurrection, in Matthew's Gospel, in Luke's Gospel, and in John's Gospel, and at the beginning of the book of Acts, this new king, this newly crowned king, this resurrected king, actually urges his followers to go out and proclaim his rule and reign. Remember at the end of Matthew's Gospel? All authority in heaven on earth and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples of all nations. Go out and start to tell everybody that I'm alive and that I'm the king and that I want to forgive them of their sins and I want to bring them into God's life and bring them to the new creation. It's no surprise that because he rose from the dead, he commissions his followers to go out and bear witness to his rule and reign in order that people can come in to experience and encounter the life that he gives. If you take the resurrection away, then you're left with a pretender whose vision for the establishment of God's kingdom came to an end on a Roman cross. Now, I need to be fair and say there are people who deny the physical resurrection of Jesus, but who still try to affirm the reality of the Christian message in some sense. I don't believe that works, and I hope to deal with that a little bit more next week. If that's you, I hope you'll come back and we can engage with that next week. But if you affirm the resurrection, and alongside the earliest Christians, we deeply do that. Then we understand Jesus as Messiah, Lord, and Son of God, who redeems the world and who reigns over all things. And these terms, particularly Lord 
and Son of God even begin to carry the weight that the divine being himself had in Jesus, actually. Come to visit, to rescue, to establish his kingdom, to deal with the problem of sin, and to redeem his people. There are loaded terms in the biblical witness that speak volumes about the identity of Jesus. Yes, as Messiah, but even mysteriously as Lord, the same word that was used for Yahweh in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And if Son of God, a term that could begin to carry the weight, not just of a messianic indication, but also of one who somehow mysteriously begins and shares the divine identity with Yahweh himself. And the resurrection is the key that begins to unlock all of this. So who is Jesus? The resurrection tells us that he is Messiah. He is Lord. He is the Son of God. A mighty Savior who in some mysterious way shares God's own identity. What did he accomplish? He inaugurated this great kingdom. As he said he would do, both in his actions and his words. And he now continues to beckon us as people underneath his rule. To enter into and enjoy the benefits of that kingdom that he's ruling over to this point, up to this day, as a living, risen, reigning king. This is who we worship. This is the one who animates our life as people of this king. And this changes our present. I hope you've sensed that over this last week as you've been living in the light of mystery. This changes our present. We serve a risen, ruling, and reigning king. This changes our future. That king is on the throne now, and there's nothing, there's absolutely nothing going on in your life today, however great it is or however hard it is, that will be able to keep you from that future which he has promised you because of your union with him. He has all the authority and all the power. He sits above every other thing and ruler. And he will ensure that you are with him on that final day when he comes to make all things new in a final way. Nothing can pry you away from that. Nothing can remove you from that. We're resurrection people who serve a resurrection king. And as you live this week, remember what this resurrection says about your king and take confidence in that and assurance from that as you seek to live out faithfully his call on your life to bear witness to his living reign and rule. And as we seek to do that together as a community under him. Amen.